Hey, it's Eric Newcomer. Welcome to the Newcomer Podcast. I talk a lot on this show about how people make their money, but never about how they spend it. This week, I'm talking to an expert in how the wealthy spend their money. That's Ray Flemings. He's the CEO of a Y Combinator-backed company called Miria. He spent many years advising people with hundreds of millions of dollars on how to buy what's not on the market. Fantastic houses, throw parties, meet with celebrities, get into the VI, VIP places that you don't even hear about. And so now he's trying to turn it into more of a software company with Miria. And we had a really fun conversation on the way the Silicon Valley elite spends their money. Give it a listen. Ray, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for coming on. Eric, thank you for having me. What percentage of your customers were people in Silicon Valley? So in the early days, nearly 100%. That's changed. So now about two-thirds of our clients are, I'd say, founders and CEOs of household name and globally recognized businesses. And about one-third is a mixture of everything else. And your business is the ultra high net worth, right? Is that the category 30 million plus? Correct. Our average client today has a net worth north of 400 million. In the previous business- 400, wow. A lot of money being made out there, Eric. (laughs) You had a startup you sold to Apple, right? In an aqua hire. And then you've had a couple startups you've worked on. How did you get into this, this- high net worth consultancy and then the startup? Like, how did you get into that world? Yeah, so so about half of my career had been in the, let's just call it early stage tech kind of world. The other half had been in the ultra high net worth space. The personal story, I needed to return home to Memphis, Tennessee. My mother had become very ill. She had kidney failure. And so I had started and sold a couple of businesses in my early 20s, had to go back home. There is no tech industry really to speak of in Tennessee. Right. And so I wound up the commissioner of music and entertainment. Tennessee has a very rich music history, right? If you go all the way back to the early days and Sun Studios and Johnny Cash and Elvis Presley and right. all of the greats and then Stax with Otis Redding, you know, just, just, you know, so many legends. Al Green, Aretha Franklin was born in Memphis. And hmm. then you come all the way to present with the Three Six Mafias and Justin Timberlakes and Taylor Swifts and everything right. going on in country and Nashville and so forth and so on. It's made an underrated contribution to American music. And so I had this two-year stint in a role. I put together a pretty interesting board and began working with a number of globally significant entertainers. And hmm. kind of my first exposure to the idea that would ultimately become Myria. In that role and, and a couple of companies thereafter, I observed something that was fascinating, and that was that the the A-list entertainers have a level of access that the wealthy don't. Even if the wealthy person was an order of magnitude or two orders of magnitude or five orders of magnitude wealthier than the A-list celebrity, their access was still way down here, right? Right. The A-list celebrities have access to things literally free of charge that the richest people in the world can't even buy, Hmm. right? And I thought that was fascinating. And, you know, I, I worked in that capacity and you know, ran a family office and then a multifamily office, so forth and so on. But that idea kind of remained with me that it was a fascinating challenge. And it ultimately right. led me to found the blue about six years ago as a concierge, essentially, for family offices. 
We scaled that business over five to six years to north of 60 million in GMV. And the question was, if we could build a business that big without technology, then what could we do with it? So I tried to put the band back together. I, I reached back into my network, a couple of technical co-founders that I had worked with and have great respect for, brought them into the company. And we began work on Myria, what would become Myria in October, 2021. We went through YC in January of that following year, and we've been off chasing it since. There's just such a phenomenon in Silicon Valley where, you know, someone is suddenly rich, you know, especially, you know, where all their net worth is basically tied up in a startup. And then finally they sell it and now they have all this money, but they don't really know how to be wealthy or what they should even get. I mean, yeah, somebody sells their company for, you know, a billion dollars and maybe they get, I don't know, 300 million of it. Like when they call you, what are you sort of walking them through or what is the life that they suddenly are chasing? First of all, there's no one size fits all answer, right? Right. But significant, sudden, great wealth does come with a particular set of challenges. If I zoom out across 15, 17 years in this space and look at all of the folks that I've worked with, okay, zoom all the way out. And let's just focus in on first generation, people who are operating a business and or, you know, they're they're doing something presently to kind of amass that wealth. I've worked with probably 100, 125 folks in that category at this point. Yeah. I hear the same things over and over. I hear it so often that we have even coined a name for it. We call it the success condition. Hmm. And it goes something like this. So, you know, we're all humans. We're all chasing, you know, the American dream. We're all chasing success. And when you achieve it, you know, one of the first discoveries that people are shocked by is that, wait, pump the brakes, money doesn't buy happiness. <laughs> right. I was talking with a client, a new client the other day, and he said, Ray, yeah, I can't talk about this publicly because, you know, the world would play the smallest violin for me. Right. He was like, but the day I exited triggered the deepest and greatest period of depression in my life. Right. Right. And I won't go into his specific story. I'll stay zoomed out. But what ends up happening, you know, we chase the American dream only to realize it. And then we're like, wait, why am I not happy? What What's missing here? Right. Rich people get sad, depressed and commit suicide just like poor people. Right. Wealth beyond about $100,000 a year doesn't actually contribute, studies show, to any more human happiness. The wealthier and more successful you become, the harder it is to form close interpersonal relationships with people that aren't in your network. It's a sa satisfying thing to hear, certainly, that you know money doesn't buy happiness. But on the flip side of it, what are the things that people buy when they make that amount of money that you think is worth it? Or that people do feel some sort of... So look, it, it, people come into my business kind of along a spectrum from like, hey, you know, they're young, they're single, you know, let's go crazy, let's have some fun, let's party right. to their mid-career, they've got kids and, you know, they wouldn't be caught dead at a club to late right. career and all of their kids are adults and they're focused on legacy and right. you know, people kind of come in along that spectrum. But for the people who have a, a new wealth event, Certainly, folks want to indulge their passions. You know, right. entrepreneurship requires, you know, a lot of our lives, a lot of our times out there chasing that dream. And so right. when you finally have the money to say, you know what I always cared about? Like for me, I always cared about you know, 
theater and acting and film and I've written screenplays, right? But I've right. been an entrepreneur, which means that, you know, 70, 80% of my waking hours, I'm focused on building a business, right? right. And so, you know, when our clients have a wealth event, they're like, oh my God, I was always passionate about music. I was always passionate about film. Whatever those right. patterns are, the first thing we see a lot of is they want to indulge them. People want to take care of the folks in their lives, the people who've right. been there for him. So you'll see a lot of like, hey, how do I help these people that I care about deeply or this cause that I care about deeply? And then, you know, all work and no play, you know, makes you a dull boy, right? So, so folks are, are definitely like, hey, I want to get out there and have some fun and whatever those interests are. One of the surprising things about money also is that it doesn't buy access. And mm. it comes full circle back to the, the A-list versus rich thing. You can have all of the money in the world, but the most interesting experiences, the most unique experiences, the things that everyone would like to enjoy, money can't always be the determining factor in buying them. Right. You know, oftentimes the seller wants to know who's buying and do they like this person? Right. Ooh, are they interesting? Right. A right. lot of those experiences are private. And so when people come into our company, we sit with them and we work with them consultatively to first understand their passions, what they care about, where they want to go. And then how do we introduce those clients into that world? I had a client who was a golf nut and he's like, hey, I want to play the top 100 courses in the world. No, the top 100 mm. in the world are all private clubs, right? And how do you get into a private club? Well, you get into a private club because members want to invite you there. Right? Mm. That's not something you can just go pay for, right? It's not like I can call the club and be like, hey, I've right. got a rich guy and he wants to come in your private club. They're going to like laugh and say no. What I can say is that I've got a really interesting human being who's incredibly philanthropic, who's super affable, who loved yeah. golf, who did it, did it, did it up, and would love to meet you. And you know, you can do okay. those sorts of things, but you can't just go buy it. Do you go try to get them press coverage? Like, oh, you you need to establish yourself as sort of like a golf person in some way, or like build a brand around that. So press is one piece of it, but oftentimes many of these relationships. You have to do them the old fashioned way, right. invite someone to dinner, bring people into mm. your world. You know what I mean? So, so yeah, it, sometimes there are no quick fixes, right? If, yeah. Like if an entrepreneur, it took them 10, 15 years of their life to become, you know, a billionaire in technology, they can call on anyone in tech. Well, all of these other worlds, be it golf or music or film or sports or whatever, all of these other worlds have their own industries. And right. people have spent 20 years cultivating those relationships. Right. You can't always just buy your way into it or do an right. article and, oh, I've arrived. <laughs> people want to know who you are. And right. that good old-fashioned relationship building and networking and getting to know people is at the heart of Miria's community function. Right. You know, people like to talk about a concierge because it's like, oh, I can go get this stuff. Right. But there is a community piece to it. There's a relationship building piece of Miria that I don't think has been well covered in the press yet. So Miria versus the consultancy, break that down. What was the motivation to really go do YC and build more of a tech platform? I mean, I to me, I think of the ultra you know, super rich. And I think of, you know, you have to sort of handhold them and they want really sort of custom attention. And so that doesn't always lend itself to software. Like what was the thinking in trying to make it into more of a tech company? Fantastic question, Eric. So <laughs> I'd love to sound like I, I had this all planned out and I was just so, you know, so smart and so, you know, so much foresight. 
I knew that I wanted to build a scalable business, right? I, and I had a background doing that. But when I started the Blue, I, I ran it for five to six years before we were able to start Myriad. And it's because, to your point, it was very complicated. How do you scale services? You know, many people would tell you, well, you can't scale services. And, and if so, what do you scale it? How do you keep your customers happy? Customers that want white glove service, customers that right. want real special. How do you give them that special touch and do it scalable, right? These are really, really hard problems to solve. You know, I grew that business on a bootstrap basis, no outside investors, as I said, to about 60 million of GMV, selling hours. Yeah, right. If you do that, you are busy, right? I kind of came to, and I didn't know my kids, you know, I hadn't seen my family. I didn't know myself. I was always on an airplane, right. always going, just, just work, 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 work. That's not sustainable. Would you at least get to go to the party you organized some of the time or how often were you at almost the always. cool thing? Yeah, yeah, almost always in that business, right? Right. I just celebrated my 50th birthday two weeks ago. And, you know, I don't have to tell you that I didn't want to spend the rest of my life, you know, on an airplane <laughs> out of a suitcase, right? right? That's, not, that's not any way to live life. So it turns out that, you know, when we started Myria, we asked our clients, we said, hey, you can ask us for anything. It turned out that 92% of all requests came for just three categories. Hmm. People wanted our global travel product. And I don't mean going on kayak and booking a plane, an airfare ticket and, and sending you to Toledo. I mean, you know, really, really crazy experiential travel. Even beyond like a private jet, like they wanted something. Yeah. So when you get off the private jet, what happens? Oh, okay. Right? So... The best things in the world, this is part of our marketing copy, the best things in the world, you can't find them on Google. And so if you can't search for them on Google, how do you even know what's on the menu? So there's this whole universe of off-market awesomeness all around the world in every category you're interested in. There's just a whole universe of things that can be unlocked. And because they're, again, not on any website, there's no one out there telling you about them. There's no place that you can go for them. How do you even know that they exist? And right. so, so that's kind of one of the, the, the key things that people join for. So you're saying the three categories, I just want to make sure we, what were that's they? The, they come in for travel experiences and, and people, right? Hmm. So oh, right. when you're running a big company, you've got an amazing team of people operating it. When you cross that kind of $300 million of net worth, you know, you're probably moving towards a single family office. And even if you're not in a single family office, you were the one of the big multifamily offices like Epic or Iconic, where whole teams of people are needed to manage your wealth and tax right. returns, etc. But then when you get to your personal life, you know, it's like your company's your full time job, your money is your part time job. Do you really then want to have a bunch of household employees running your personal life? <laughs> Even when you get home, there's like right. a company being run in your kitchen, right. right? Most people don't want that, right? So they're like, oh my goodness, when I get home, I just want to relax. So what they end up with is like one personal assistant, maybe trying to do everything in their personal mm. life. And here's a person worth $3 billion. They would never dream of trying to run their company with one person trying mm. to run a multi-billion dollar enterprise, but their personal life has become a multi-billion dollar enterprise. They've got multiple homes, you know, children, potentially a divorce, you know, all assets, things all over the place. Right. They want things. And 
assistants work their tails off. It is far be it from me to disparage the hard work of anyone's assistant, but there's no assistant in the world that has expertise in all the categories that the world's billionaires need help in. Right. And so, you know, we ask our clients, hey, what do you want? 92% of requests came from just three categories. And then the other interesting part about the business, we learned that there are about 20 markets in the world that people who are ultra wealthy care about and want unlocked. Hmm. And if we have great coverage in those three categories, in those 20 markets, we've covered the 90% use case. Are you still doing the consultancy part of it or you're out of that, that game? We're, we're out of that business. Now, there's still a strategy component at Myria where, again, there's no one size fits all. And so when a client joins, they answer a very lengthy questionnaire. We do a live interview with them and their significant other and the head of their family office. Hmm. We integrate with their team. Again, we're not here to replace anyone's assistance. So when someone hires us, if their team has 80% of their life already dialed in, we plug in for the other 20. If they've got 60 dialed in, we plug in for the other 40, right? We work with them. We're actually training an LLM on each client. Hmm. So their preferences, their tastes, their bucket list, you know, everywhere that they have been and want to go. So when they call us with a last minute dinner reservation in Paris, their 13-year-old's food allergy is automatically appended to that. And then the group learnings, you know, one of the other great advantages of working with a firm like ours is that we work with exactly this type of customer. And we have so many learnings from over a decade and a half of doing this specific thing. How big is the team right now? Team right now is seven. And are a lot of those people, like, I guess several of them are engineers, or do you have people like dedicated client service? All in-house engineers and client service is essentially our business. Right. Also, there's a design function and a product function, but primarily, you know, we're building the software to do this. But like, like right now, like if I was imagining, you know, like what would I do if I were you know, one of these people, it'd be like, oh, okay, when I go to the Taylor Swift concert, you know, I want to like talk to Taylor. I can't imagine I'm the only person with that idea. You know, we just saw Sheryl Sandberg, I think posted like a bunch of Facebook people in what was clearly a box. But I mean, Taylor, I mean, she's not going to want you to like list her and say, hey, like, like if she's willing to meet with an ultra net worth person, it's sort of like a one-off idea, right? Or that's a question. Like, do you think like these sort of a-list top celebrities want to be like listed on some platform where they're getting sort of multiple requests because people know it's it's an idea out there that they can you know go hang with her. So the answer is that it's different for each celebrity. And certainly as you get to the stratosphere, the Taylor Swifts, the Beyonce's, these people do not have any financial motivation to meet any person. When you're doing arena-sized shows and 80,000 people are out there screaming your name, it's hard to do any sort of meaningful meet and greet. Now, if Taylor is visiting a city or any A-list celebrity is visiting a city where a very successful person is doing something that Taylor cares about, Right. Is interesting to Taylor, (laughs) right? Or interesting to this other celebrity, then there is an opportunity to create a personal experience. But if that person isn't doing something that the celebrity themselves would have an interest in getting to know that person or spending some time with them, then that's going to be really, really hard, right? Because it's like, I'm rich, so you should want to meet me. (laughs) Well, 
the celebrities also rich and everyone wants to meet them so they can't right. make the time to just meet with a random rich person because they want to meet them interesting one of the things i'm taking away is like being famous as a rich person is like is valuable sort of in its own separate from the wealth like sort of uh, the mark cuban types or whatever are going to get more access than the sort of much wealthier anonymous rich person is that right for sure and people will use miria to convert financial currency into social currency or social capital right. right so it is this transfer of how do i you know convert the financial success that i've had into a more enjoyable life this is one of the central questions that people join myriad to ask and ask for help getting answered if i'm i don't know what tier like i mean certainly like bezos tier but like do i try to get everybody who interacts with me to sign an nda or what's sort of the level of like especially if i'm out partying like on a yacht is everybody at that party like signing some sort of non-disclosure agreement basically to keep things confidential? So on Myria, there's a couple of things that are built in. I'm going to give you a two-part answer to this. Okay. On our platform, everyone that sells to any of our members is automatically NDA'd. Everyone that yep. sells to any of our members is automatically under binding arbitration. There is a right. world of people who are you know, the wealthy are targets for frivolous litigation, right. all sorts of bullshit that just kind of chases them down. So we try to prevent that on the platform side. Now, in real life, if you are partying or what have you, and you're hosting a thing, a lot of people will, you know, request or demand an NDA or lock your phones, you know, all sorts mm. of you know, kind of like Dave Chappelle style, you know, where you have the little bags that you put your phone in at the start right. of the show and they're like right. magnetically locked and, <laughs> and so forth. Right. Which, right. frankly, I think is a good thing because of phone addiction and here you've thrown a million dollar party for people's enjoyment and they're sitting there looking right. on the phone, not even enjoying the party because they're like texting and all sorts of other things. But look, there are holes and gaps. I can tell you a horror story. We did a completely innocuous very big budget party in an incredible home. And mm. the reason for the NDAs was, again, there was just a lot of famous people relaxing, right. having a great time in a super expensive home. There was no sex parties or no drugs. There was nothing that you couldn't have printed on the front page of the New York right. But no one wanted, you know, cameras in their face while they're right. trying to, like, relax and just have a good time. Someone, I don't know who, took the, the NDA to the local press or tech press or whatever. Hmm. And we get a phone call the next day. And it was basically like their angle was that we had NDA'd the women, but not the men, right? Right. And to make this like discriminatory, you know, thing where we were like the man or the men who didn't, you know, have to sign an NDA right. was the personal dear close friends of the client. So yes, they right. walked right in without signing it. And right. these people were not, and they were asked to sign it. And so sometimes that can come back to bite you. Right. We do kind of enforce the yeah. rules around everything that we do. You do. Yeah. Yeah. As part you're saying as part of the platform, we, we try to, but there is no substitute for having a good group of people that are awesome and fantastic. And, you know, it's harder and harder. This was my earlier point about success. The more successful you become, the harder and harder it is to form close interpersonal relationships outside of your network for precisely right. in part the reason you're talking about that, you know, it's become sport to vilify the rich. Right. 
How much of your job is sort of on the relationship side or the old, you know, like, you know, somebody is like phenomenally wealthy. You talk about sort of the difficulty in making new relationships. I mean, I imagine sort of meeting a partner is sort of double-edged sword. How much of that is, is sort of what your business was or is? So first of all, relationship management is at the heart of what we do. And, you know, no amount of technology is going to remove that. But Miria is building Facebook for the world's wealthiest people, right? It's a two-app ecosystem like Uber or any other, you know, kind of two-sided platform marketplace, you know, app structure. The demand side for Miria are our members. These are the ultra high net worth people. Right. The suppliers at Miria are the businesses, the brands, the sports teams, the, you know, the family office staff and you know, mm. all of the folks that sell to our members, they have their own app. So the members have one, the providers have one. Now, mm. it's interesting that within the member side, there is also a community component in the media right. where they can talk one to another. Mm. So it's like Raya, the you know high-end closed community dating app in that you know you have to be vetted, undergo a full KYC, et cetera, to be a part of the community. But once you're there, they can invite one another to things, share things with each other, and there's this valuable social networking component, member to member within that mm. side of the application. And then when they make a request for something or, hey, I need this, then that request goes out to our network of providers on the other side. Is it always sort of the actual wealthy person who's interacting with the platform? Or I imagine a lot of them, you know, outsource these things to their family office. And part of it, it seems like your business is like, the family offices aren't always equipped to actually do the non-monetary stuff. And they're like, oh, how do we how do we figure out these worlds? But my sense is there's a certain sometimes reliance on like, you know, the wealthy person doesn't want to directly get their hands dirty and have to figure these things out even through an app. Or like, how are you handling that challenge where there might be an intermediary between the super wealthy person? So we welcome the teams that support our clients now. Miria is a private member community. Your assistant cannot join that community for you any more than, you know, your assistant can join Augusta National for you if you wanted right. to, you know, to, to play Augusta, right? Like you hmm. yourself individually have to be a member of the club. So people who play a support function in their life, they can get a version of the Miria app. But that community piece that I was referring to earlier, yeah. they can't see that. They can't see what... Hmm they're talking about or asking or requesting that's mm. only they can certainly see the invoices they can see the bids they can see you know kind of all the functioning of of a request when they make a request and we have a concierge in paris do it they can deal with all of those pieces but the member to member portion of it teams have no access to that's members only most of our communication i would argue i don't know 80 to 90 percent of our communications with our clients are direct to principle. That's more than I would have thought. Just because when it comes to their personal lives, they're much more dialed in and not Absolutely. sort of getting these intermediaries. It's their vacation. It's the <laughs> things that they care most about, right? And we've made it super easy, right? So they can chat in Apple Business Chat. So it looks just like iMessage. Now, when they send a message to Miria's Apple Business Chat, of course, it's triaged and goes to our team, but literally just with the text. And so I mean, we're getting hundreds of texts a day from a global who's who 
themselves, not their assistant, not their teams. And again, we welcome their assistants. We welcome their teams. So it's not like we're trying to cut anyone out, but I'm just indicating that we have direct to principal conversation is, is the super majority of all of the, the communication back and forth. What's the growth strategy or how, how do you sort of get in front of these people? So we had taken, there's two ways to grow Miria. You can grow Miria. Actually, let me pause and then let me talk a little bit about the market and then we'll get into growth. Okay. So just to, yeah. to frame it up, when I started the previous company seven years ago, there was about 195,000, call it 200,000 ultra high net worth individuals worldwide six years ago. Roll the clock forward to today. There's 395,000 people worldwide worth at least $30 million. Hmm. If you roll the clock forward in three years, it is forecast to be 700,000 people in the ultra high net worth designation, right? So this is a rapidly growing market segment. But let's focus on today. Just shy of 400,000 people worth at least $30 million. We did a share of wallet study. Their combined net worth is north of $30 trillion for hmm. the 400,000 people. And they allocate about 70% of it, $21 trillion, to investments. And then spend the other in a bunch of different categories. And we did a detailed analysis of that spending. Added it all up. The lifestyle and recreational spending of those 395, 400,000 people is $410 billion per year. Hmm. That's 1.1 million per person per year. Um, lifestyle and recreation. Lifestyle and recreation alone. Okay, it's a massive market. And so, you know, when you asked me your earlier question about how do we grow Miria, there's two ways to grow it. One, growing the number of humans on the platform. Two, growing the percentage of that capture, how much of that money is being spent on our platform. And so in our first year of operations, we got about 11% of that spend for our early customers. So about $130,000, $140,000 per year per person spent on our platform. Q1 of this year, we made sweeping changes and we got that number up to about $400,000 of spend per person on our platform. Hmm. And we are now approaching our target of, of 550,000. We want, want, we want fully half of their lifestyle and recreational spending spent on Myriad. We think that that indicates that we have a really sticky product that people love and see a lot of value in. In June, we began to impress. We began telling our story. We hadn't done that for the first year and a half. We'd been working on the product. We'd been working on capturing the spend. Now that we've started telling our story, we've built a massive waiting list. We have about 150 Forbes listed billionaires on our wait list today. Hmm. Wow. And we are working our tails off, you know, signing new members. You know, we started the year with nine members. So year one, we were focused on just our investors, just our friends, just the spin capture, just getting the product right. And it was a lot. To right. Do. And we were a startup. And so not only was there a lot to do, you know, the, the, the typical, you know, early seed stage startup roller coaster, right? We were riding it every single day. Is there a core like billionaire that you're around or like I saw in the SF Standard article, he's not a billionaire, but Steve Huffman, the Reddit CEO, was there. Anecdote. So I assume... He's in the sort of YC world, so maybe he was willing to talk about it. But like, are there any billionaires who are, allow you to talk about your work with them? 
we do it on a case by case basis. We don't violate anyone's privacy. Like I right. wouldn't, just, right. wouldn't just go here on the air and start talking about right. examples. But certainly Steve and a number of other folks from the YC community have been longtime friends and customers of ours. And, you know, you know, these are people that we think the world of. Many of them are also in our cap table. And and we've been able to, you know, maintain a, a great, you know, working relationship and friendship with them for many years. Post YC, um, have you raised a Series A or have you raised post YC? Uh, so we raised our seed. We have not gotten to our Series A yet. We're in an interesting business, you know, from a unit economics perspective, Myria does shockingly well. We make six figures per customer per year. And so these customers, they're consumers, but they spend like enterprises. And so we are right now, we're in a very, very good position because we have a wait list of customers. We have customers that are significant lifestyle spenders already on platform. And so we're trying to manage that growth period. I suspect that we will go out and have our Series A conversations within the next six months at some point. But right now, we're focused squarely on our customers. And I think we can operate this business profitably for you know, for a very long time in the future without a Series A. The question becomes how quickly we want to grow. And that's what may push us into a Series A discussion. Are there certain trips that you're sort of targeting people to? Or it's like, we're great at the parties around Sundance, or I don't know. I don't know what the classic sort of wealthy people, you know, I, I, you see a TikTok every once in a while of like, oh, this is sort of the circuit of the ultra wealth, wealthy. Do you have stops that you feel like, oh, we're really dominant in those stops? I mean, look, if you can't be in this business and not be able to operate in Europe, in the Mediterranean in the summer on a world-class basis. <laughs> you can't yeah. do this business. You can't do this business and not be able to operate in the French Alps and in the Caribbean St. Bart's sort of thing over the Christmas holidays, you, you can't do this business, right? Then, you know, you need incredible access in and around professional sports from F1 to, to pro football. But typically all of these mm -hmm. things are for sale, right? Like most right. of this stuff is actually on market and commoditized. If your credit card will swipe, you can buy blank. Where Myria gets really exciting is when you've been to the Super Bowl and you've been to F1 and you've bought a paddock pass and you've gone to Ibiza and then you're like, I went, but I saw these people having an experience that I didn't know how to get. Hmm. Like they went in, those people, you know, who are those guys that are, you know, over there. How is that? Experience? How do I get to the Leo party? Like, where, right. Right. like how are those things actually right. happening? And that's right. when people realize like, hmm, there's always another door. And these are things that your travel agent, these are things that your assistant, they're simply not capable uh, of executing against. Right. And that's why they call. I mean, some of these things sound like people need to be better at making friends. Are, are you helping people like sort of perform well in these circumstances so that they get invited to the things that they want? The funny thing is that a lot of these people have, quote unquote, the relationships to do some of these things themselves. Right. Right. These are globally significant, right. very successful, very wealthy people. But hypothetically, let's say you have a good relationship with Stan Kroenke. When you want special access at SoFi Stadium, you know, he owns the Rams. Do you yeah. really want to do you really want to email Stan and ask? Right. Him, Every hey, time. Right. 
right? Like, this is one of the wealthiest people in the world. And you're probably like, right. you know, I'd rather protect my relationship or use that political capital for some other thing when you actually right. need it, right? So right. people love Soho House. And Ron Burkle is an amazing person, the owner of Soho House, and very friendly and very social. Right. But do you really want to, you know, you know, I want something special at Soho House. Right. Really want to call. So oftentimes, you know, it's not like people don't know how to make friends or don't have any relationships, yeah. right? There is this caricature, I think, of the, the tech guy in the media as being this socially awkward, culturally right. unaware. That, that was like Mark Zuckerberg in his 20s or whatever. But they, yeah, they've all sort of grown up. This a idea, bit. right? And that's just not true, right? There's also right. the portrayal of rich people kind of in the real housewives of New York, sort of, you know, really icky, really sort of bitchy, really nasty. I don't really know those people. Right. The folks that I see want to be nice to people. They want to give back. They're trying to figure it out. They're like, holy, you know, this happened to me. They're generally great human beings trying to figure out a tough problem. Most of the folks that I know, yeah, there's some bad actors. Yes, we've had to fire some clients. But most of the folks that I know are good folks who care and who are trying to do the right thing. Right. And I imagine if you're trying to build a network where the people use the same providers again, you want sort of wealthy people are treating sort of the other side of the network well. So there's some incentive to... There is a rating in Myria. Hmm. So this surprises people, right? Because normally these platforms are built to cater to the needs and the egos of the ultra wealthy. And certainly we cater to the needs and certainly we try to be nice to everyone. But, 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 but the reality is that the things that people want most, it's not just about money, right? You can't just buy. There's this old Coco Chanel saying where, you know, the best things in life are free and the second best things are very, very expensive, right? (laughs) That's things. It's like, well, who wants to buy it? So in Myria, when someone buys you know, some amazing out of this world experience, the seller rates the buyer. And this is a very, very important part of our platform. Right. Because other sellers of really rare, really amazing experiences and opportunities want to know that this person, this buyer will act the right way. Right. If you watch the Super Bowl. There are people standing on the sidelines at the Super Bowl who do not play for either team, who don't work for a sponsor, Hmm. who don't work for the television networks. Well, how do you get to stand on the field in the Super Bowl? (laughs) Well, you've got to be known to the right people to stand there. Because how do they know you're not going to run on the field or trip a player or just just be a pain in their ass in the middle of this massive major event, right? And so, so... that access is not for sale. Sure, right. if you're going to get there, it will be expensive. You'll have to pay for it. But it's not about the money. There's a lot of people that have the money to stand there, but don't have the reputation to stand there. And so that's why Miria scores these members. So when you're doing these really rare and unique things, having other sport team owners and people who control incredible events around the world say, that guy was a pleasure to work with first-class individual, loved that human being. Right. You know, those are the sorts of things that you're trying to facilitate. I mean, one one challenge I can imagine with your business is just that America is very good at selling things. Or like, you know, I mm-hmm. like 
I think of like the Vegas world. Like, I wonder how much you play there because like Vegas is like expert at like, if somebody will pay for it, like we can deliver you a more premium world. Like I can see it so much more in the like, yeah, trips to Europe or, you know, or interactions with like artists. But are there lots of pieces of the spending like sort of clubs and Vegas? And I would have thought the NFL where it's like, they're pretty good at trying to get like money wherever they can get it all the way up to the sort of richest person in the world. Or how do you think about that? Vegas is a great question, right? So if you're Bill Gates and you go to Vegas, clearly you're one of the wealthiest Americans, but Bill Gates is not a gambler. Right. And so there are things <laughs> about Vegas which will not be available to Bill Gates. Sure, Bill hmm. Gates might want to go and buy a casino and make those things available to him, but he would literally have to go buy right. that casino to make those things available to himself. Because right. if you've got a, a guy worth $100 billion who doesn't gamble and a gambler, <laughs> Right. Who's, you know, gonna gamble $20 million on this trip. Right. right. And Elon Musk wants this hotel room. And that gambler wants that same hotel room. If Elon Musk is staying in that hotel room and the gambler decides to come in that weekend, do you know what's going to happen to Elon Musk? They're going to move him. Right. right. Elon is going to have to get up out of that room and they're going to put that gambler in it. Right. And the way that Las Vegas works, right? Hmm. And it's not a reflection of Elon. It's not a reflection of Bill Gates. That's just how Las Vegas works. At the end of the day, when you're in those presidential suites, the crazy rooms, hmm. et cetera, in those casinos, the biggest gambler wins, period. Interesting. Right. End of story, right? And hmm. so there is this whole side of Vegas for very well-heeled non-gamblers that they simply don't have access to. And, hmm. you know, with those ground rules that I've already laid out, we're very good at helping people navigate those things. So we did a 50th anniversary, not 50th anniversary, 50th birthday for a client in Las Vegas. Now, this is a, a Bay Area-based client. Vegas, of course, is like a suburb of the Bay Area, right? <laughs> right. And so they had been to Las Vegas a, you know, a jazillion times. And they're like, right. look, we want to do the birthday in Vegas, but we want it to feel special. Well, how do you make the hotel that you've gone to, right. you know, right. two times in the last three years feel special? Right. And so we, we have a special relationship with the win. We privatized the 50th floor. We hired our own staff of a hundred people and ran a hotel within the hotel, within the hotel. So the wow. towel suites group within the win is kind of the special area, but we literally had our own check-in people. We had our own check-in desk. We had our own you know, super attractive staff opening the car doors of the people, mm. not the winds, otherwise wonderful, you know, valet staff. We literally ran our own. So when a person walked in the door, they didn't even go to the check-in desk. They didn't have to present a credit card. They didn't have to do anything. They just got on right. the elevator. Right. And they rode up to the 50th floor. So we privatized the entire 50th floor. We changed all the artwork in the hallway at the Wynn Hotel. When mm. the elevator banked open, we were running a club in the elevator bank, we built custom mobile DJ equipment with speakers so that every person who came up the elevator, they could be escorted into their room with a DJ playing their favorite songs down the hallway mm. with a cocktail in their hands getting off the elevator. The load-in for the 50th anniversary event was like a music festival. There was a small club that hadn't been used really in the wind for anything for a long time. 
And we turned it into this, you know, kind of crazy knocked out experience. And I can go on and on and on about yeah. all of the things that, that you can do there. But these are things which, you know, if you go for CES, you know, a company like Microsoft isn't executing at that level within Las Vegas. Right. right. There's just there's certain things that there's always kind of other levels to it and, and executing in that way. That experience that you just described. How do you translate that into this sort of startup where you can sort of repeatedly sell something like that? A two-sided marketplace. You remember that I said that all of the requests came down to three categories in 20 markets. And so when I go into Las Vegas, there are relationships, vendors, et cetera, that we rely on to do world-class work. Right. You know, in, in my background, my previous experiences, I was working in touring and working in all these crazy things that I was doing with recording artists. I built a global network of people that are amazing at this stuff. The best of the best of the best. We've now been operating Myriad for two years and operated the Blue for six years before that and then family offices for right. a decade before that. So I've got all of this experience, this deep, deep Rolodex, and they're on the provider side, the supply side of our network. And so if a person came in and said, hey, I want to create the last word, 50th birthday party in Las Vegas, I want it to be out of this world. All of those vendors that we used are already on platform and we refer them in and then they go and do their thing. Sort of on the opposite end of the Vegas spectrum, I heard you on a podcast talking about like post-wealth people. You were also sort of suggesting post-post-wealth, which I was curious <laughs> what that was exactly. But what do you do? You know, somebody has been rich now for a while. They have like a beautiful house. They have their own vacation homes. Like they're not like itching to consume necessarily like what can you get them to do or how do you think about that sort of customer yeah, it's a post luxury customer right so right you know, people think that we're in the luxury business we're really not we're we're in the life and lifestyle business so you know for every customer that cares about luxury you know we help them to enjoy it. you should enjoy your life those customers eventually have had all of those experiences and they're they'll ask invariably the question well what's next Right. People come to that kind of mid-career stage. Hey, I've done all of that. I'm married. I found, you know, my spouse. I've got young kids. I, I want what's kind of the next set of, of opportunity. So that question is answered in different ways. People then are looking for meaning. People then are looking for much more impactful things. People are family-oriented. And there's a whole nother world of experiences that satisfy those three conditions. And so this customer might there may be thought leaders that they want to get to know. There mm. may be causes that they want to support. There is a whole new set of experiences. That oftentimes, as people approach that mid-career, their health becomes a concern, and so concierge mm. medicine. And and there's just there's just a whole nother world of learnings and things as people kind of move out of the glitzy, luxurious party kind of fun world and move right. to. Longevity becomes a consideration. The children, you know, wealth transfer. A lot of people, hey, I'm going to step back from operating. I'm going to become the chairman of my business, no longer the CEO. So now for the first time in my career, I've got time on my hands. Hmm. A lot of people get to that point. You know, and sadly, many people get to that point and the financial success may have cost them their first relationship so many people approaching that are now divorced and they're mm. now single so they're looking to date but not go to the nightclub date you know right. like 
very, very different thing. I've already got two kids, you know, I'm 45 and 50 years old, you know, and so they're, they're single again for the first time in their life. And so there's a, just an entirely new set of considerations for that kind of mid-career client that's coming in, who's, you know, entering new territory. And we have a whole body of, of learnings, and best practices and experiences. And then other folks who are in the same position, you know, a lot of that becomes community. Hey, I, I just want to know some other great people who have kids between five and 10 years old, you know, so that we can do some cool stuff together. And there's a whole, whole universe of things in there that we, we connect people around. Totally different question. Can celebrities make meaningful money by having these relationships with the ultra wealthy? Or like, do you see celebrities where this is really a big part of their income stream, like harnessing these relationships, making basically being party promoter type person or whatever? Well, party promotion. Okay, maybe that's too. That's a bad. Yeah, there's I'll there's no. That there's bad. no great wealth. I'll tell you something. That, I, I this this got in my head because I was like, oh, how do you make a party cool? And like, we, oh, celebrities yeah. go or whatever. You know. Anyway, so I created an experience where we had you know, kind of a list, you know, recording artists actually spend a few days on vacation with some cool clients. Hmm. Now. This was not a private. The clients didn't pay the celebrity some multi-million dollar, you know, appearance fee. Hmm. And I did it because I knew the celebrity incredibly well. Hmm. Like we traveled together, we partied together, like, boom. And I knew my clients incredibly well. And I was like, look, you guys don't know each other, but you should know each other, right? Hmm. Like, and if you'll both trust me, right? Like, come together hang out. We were all going right. to the, spend a few days. Everyone did it. Everyone had the time of their lives. Hmm. You know, the guys have, you know, a couple of the guys who were on the, the trip have gotten married. The celebrity came to the wedding. And for the celebrity, they wound up starting their own fund. Hmm. And their early LPs were our right. clients, right? right? And helping them to get that off the ground and so forth and so on. And so, there are, yes, there are certainly ways for the celebrity clients to benefit from it, but it all starts with authenticity. Like these people hmm. authentically needed to know one another, right? right. They were super successful and they were super successful. So it wasn't like anyone needed right. anything from right. each other. And they were kind of at the same place in life and we put them together. And yes, you know, incredibly profitable, you know, sort of financial hmm. things came out of it for everyone, but it didn't start there. And Miria's community, you know, our community networking is not business first. You don't right. join Miria chasing alpha, right? The people who join Miria have already made fantastic amounts of money and they've got family offices that are running their right. wealth. You join Miria to have more fun. You join Miria to meet cool people and to have those sorts of experiences. And sure, business opportunities grow out of it, hmm. but it's not a peer-to-peer -peer networking professional organization like a YPO. If somebody has like a hundred million dollar house or whatever, like what incentivizes me to like loan it out to a stranger? Or, you know, I, I can imagine the situation with wanting to borrow like the coolest house in whatever city, but whoever owns that house is so phenomenally wealthy already. Like would money even get to them or what's sort of the strategy for something like that where somebody wants to rent out someone's house? Yeah. You know, this is the very heart of our business, right? At the end of the day, we've managed more hundred million dollar homes than any other firm. Hmm. Okay. 
Hmm. So this isn't this is not something that I I'm speculating about. Like like I've been on the front line, like hiring the estate manager, training the team, setting up the security, like the, right. the whole nine. Hmm. Like, like I know this world. Look, and at the end of the day, a person who owns a home like that, the home will never be listed on Airbnb. Ever. <laughs> right. And the funny thing is. If I zoom out and look at all of the people in that position who own these, you know, these landmark homes, right? most of them are actually open to renting it out. Right. Because they've spent so much time perfecting it and putting art on the wall and making it right. awesome. They actually want to share it oftentimes. Their hesitancy and the reason they don't is because they don't know who. They don't right. know, is this person going to come in and damage my house? Are they going to be a jerk? You know what I mean? Right. Like, so... The way that renting a $100 million home works is a lot like getting a meet and greet with a top A-list celebrity. You were asking me the, you know, the Taylor or Beyonce hypothetical, right? right? So it's like, well, who wants to rent the house and what do they want to do with it? And, you know, if if a very successful person with incredible taste who also owns and operates beautiful homes you know, wants to rent my house for something classy and cool and they get it. Well, you know, it's kind of easy to get those things done. We also have had, you know, clients ask for a wedding. So a really, really incredible home in the LA area changed hands and it was bought by a head of state. Hmm. In the past, this home had been used for events, but it was now owned by the the sitting head of state for of a country. And at the end of the hmm. day, they were like, there is no amount of money under which, you know, because they've got security considerations and all of these other things. They're just like, no, right? And so some homes will enter a scenario where no amount of money, right? I think the client was willing to offer some, you know, absurd rental fee, right? And, but the owner of the home, you know, had no need for it. And they were like, you know, absolutely not. So, so you see it both ways. But most clients who own those homes, they are willing to rent them out. Like, how do you... No, right away you get a new client. They're maybe not famous. Like what level of wealth you're dealing with? What are the ways to sort of like know who you're interacting with when they're just like too many, like you were saying in the beginning, I mean, there's so many wealthy people, like you can't know them all. How do you get a briefing on them quickly when you need it? So the primary consideration for Miriam membership is not money. It's actually who the person is. We want to bring on a person that we can make happy. And so there's an interview and, hmm. you know, we get to know each other. That's important. But we have a firm KYC requirement to join Myriad. And so for some customers, to your point, they're running a publicly traded company. And so the wealth verification stage is very simple. Others right. are operating private businesses. And the, one of the great joys of my job is getting to meet these amazing entrepreneurs who've made massive fortunes, doing things you never thought of or heard about in the right. middle of nowhere. And you're like, what? You know, it's just like right. mind-bogglingly successful people, you know, and and generally so nice and so like just laid back and totally cool. You know, I met a guy, you know, he owns a business outright that's doing over $2 billion a year of EBITDA. He owns mm-hmm. 100% of the cap table. Oh, my God. Who outside investors and is doing $2 billion a year. That's in insane. EBITDA, right? right. And like. And you will never hear of him. You know, he's right. not in any press. He's one right. of the most philanthropic people you'll ever meet. Just super, hmm. super cool and just like completely out of nowhere. But to answer your right. question, 
we'll go through a, a wealth verification process. You know, we'll work with their family office and or a recognized international bank. They'll provide access to certain information. Hmm. Obviously, we destroy that information. We don't keep these records on, on clients, but, but we need to look at it. And then once they pass the KYC and we've established that, you know, we'll admit them for membership. But it's a we essentially do it manually by hand for those members that we can't independently, you know, obviously look at a stock price or something like that and, and verify. I mean, we we spent a lot of you know the conversation. <laughs> it's it's hard not to sort of fantasize about the life of the the ultra wealthy and sort of hear how they're living. I mean, for for the sort of you know more averagely wealthy or just sort of tech entrepreneur like or you know just regular person, like what lessons would you take from all this experience in terms of the ways that people spend money that you know actually makes them happy? I would actually encourage my super wealthy clients and someone with less financial success to to just keep in mind how fragile life and health really is to enjoy mm. your life now that tomorrow is not promised that you are not going to take it with you you know the egyptians tried that right and for all that generational wealth is cracked up to be you aren't going to enjoy it in that next generation right. you, you will not be here and enjoy your life and be good to people respect your community, you have a, an opportunity to help at whatever level of success you have to whatever causes you care about, I would encourage people to kind of get outside of the me-centric perspective hmm. and look at you know those that you care about. When you think about yourself, also think about yourself enjoying your life outside of work and building you know, building a warmer, richer life, using your wealth to help others. And the, the people who I think are happiest with great success are the folks who've done that, who have kind of picked the areas that they care about, how they want to help and what they want to do when they do those things, as opposed to chasing, chasing, chasing. Oh, man, I'm worth 100 million. I need to be worth 200. I need right. to be worth 500. Right. I need to be worth a billion because it never ends, right? right. It, you're always chasing something. And then when I get there, I'm going to be happy. But the truth is, you never will. And so, you know, we encourage. They've got to hit the threshold where they can be your customer. <laughs> yeah. But you know, the funniest thing for us, like, like if a person, you know, this, this sounds super obnoxious, but, you know, if a person was only worth $30 million, but they're nice and they're affable and we can make them happy. If a person was, was worth potentially even a number smaller than that, you know, we, we like really awesome people who are. Who are great you know we practice this idea of inclusive exclusivity you know there are people who have changed the world who may not have the commensurate financial success we welcome those members into our ranks as well hmm. people who've made globally significant contributions to the arts and to other areas we welcome those members as well cool well thanks so much for coming on the show this has been fascinating i really enjoyed it Eric, I appreciate you having me on and letting me blab a little bit about all the, the great work that Mary, I really appreciate it. All right. Good luck with it. Thank you. That's our episode. Thanks so much to Ray Flemings. Shout out to Tommy Heron, our audio editor, Riley Kinsella, my chief of staff, Annie Wen, who's producing this summer, and of course, Young Chomsky, who created this wonderful theme music. Please like, comment, subscribe on YouTube. Give us a review on Apple Podcasts. And of course, subscribe to the Substack newcomer.co thank you so much see you next week goodbye 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 goodbye